the, so the commentary is basically as bad as the commentary would be if you asked me to do the commentary for like the Falcons versus the Saints. Fantastic. You know, I would, I mean, lo- <laughs> I would love to hear your thoughts on that. <laughs> but but you know, imagine imagine like so so you go out and play and it's like oh yeah that guy just threw the ball. No, oh, and and so you know how the race. I mean, I know how the sport works. I know first downs are and all that. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the most pleasant exhaustion podcast, brought to you by ITL Coaching and Performance and Casey, the Travel Planner. My name is George Darn. I'm an endurance athlete and coach here in Atlanta, Georgia. And I'm Patrick Ollinger, also an endurance coach and runner here in the Atlanta area. Welcome back, everybody. Happy July to all of you. Happy start start to the Tour de France, which we're going to talk about here in just a few minutes. But uh, this past week was July 4th, and it was the uh, the Peachtree Road Race here in Atlanta. Patrick, you ran the Peachtree Road Race. Give us the insider view. Tell us how it went for you. Indeed. Uh, so I'll talk about how it went kind of broadly for, for you know the race as a whole, and I'll talk about how it went for me personally. So... You know, Atlanta Track Club has just gotten bigger and bigger and really more and more professional in how they've, uh, you know, been in terms of organizing these races, uh, Peachtree included. And they did a phenomenal job of of getting 60,000 people mm-hmm. to the starting line, through the finish line, and really kind of fed and rehydrated properly during a hot July day here in Atlanta. Yeah, um, I know that's a very repetitive statement, hot July day in Atlanta. Yeah. You know, I could have just said Atlanta in the summertime. <laughs> um but it was, it was a pretty typical day as far as like the weather went and all that sort of thing, right? I mean, it's it's it, I, it was I sort of your so. standard Peachtree Road race. Yeah, it, it, there have been some years where they were scorchers, and you're telling people like, don't go for time, just yeah. get to the finish, you know, stay out of the uh, ER, and and then there's been <laughs> some enjoy t- your, there's your been race. a few days over the course of the past five or ten years where it's been like like I remember 2015, it yep. poured rain and it was so it was kind of cool. Yeah, um, and so like on those days they're equipped with all this water and all this stuff for heat and they don't really need it because people don't tend to overheat when it's pouring rain and it's, you know, 70 degrees. Um, right. And, and, you know, on those years too, people tend to need like towels and sweat rags and stuff to kind right. of, to, to dry off. Um, but overall they moved up the starting time to 7am, which I think was incredibly helpful for me in particular, um, because it didn't start to get hot until about 8.30 or so, mm-hmm. if I remember correctly, because it was pretty cloudy in the morning. Mm-hmm. Um, so that really helped to be able to kind of run the race and finish the race before it got hot. Um, and then I would say, too, it was just an easy, easier day. The streets weren't wet. You know, you're not kind of sloshing through. Mm-hmm. So I, I really enjoyed it. It's it's always a lot of fun to me. It's, it's a race I've run since I was in high school. And, you know, it's one where I was... T- tell people it's almost like a parade mm-hmm. because you're just running through the streets of Atlanta. You're seeing people yeah. you know cheering for you. And then you get to the finish, and it's almost like a big high school reunion. I'm seeing people <laughs> I ran cross-country with in high school. I'm meeting coaches who knew me when I was in high school who were high school coaches in Gwinnett County and Cobb County. Right. And then I'm seeing people I ran with in college. Then I'm seeing people I ran with when I first started running um, you know, as a professional. And by professional, I mean like a professional you know, uh, white collar worker, not a professional athlete. <laughs> um, and then you're seeing people like with ITL who I run with and coach with, et cetera. And so it's like almost, it's a 30 minute run and then two hours of meeting and talking with That's people cool. that cool. maybe you don't, you haven't seen since the last peach tree. Um, cool. so I can tell you a lot of folks from high school, we actually have a tradition every year where we, we always run the peach tree and then we always take a picture together. So you yeah. can kind of see how we've grown throughout <laughs> the years. Um, 
you know, one guy, he's he's flying in from Canada every year to do it. So, oh, that's cool. So that was a lot of fun. I mean, it, it really is just a, a unique event. It, it, it ends at beautiful Piedmont Park. Um, you run through some of the gorgeous parts of the city. And, you know, so in uh, that standpoint, it was just phenomenal. Um, in terms of kind of a bit more of an athletic perspective on my end, um, just to give you some background. So I got I ran the Boston Marathon in April, and then I got knocked out with bronchitis in May. And then June has been nothing but easy running, right? Because you can't really put much with, – with a few track workouts sprinkling. I think I've done three, maybe four track workouts uh, since the marathon. Um, because really you can't – when you're coming back from bronchitis, you don't want to put much stress on your lungs. You really need to help to keep that inflammation from coming back. Because once you kind of tap back into the inflammation and the swelling of the lungs, then you're starting back from ground zero. So, you know, I kind of – Put the uh, peach tree as a bit of a target to say, okay, let's let's use this as a chance to kind of stick a flag in the ground and see where I am fitness wise, etc. Mm-hmm. I had an A goal and a B goal, but yeah. my kind of mindset was, you know, not to kill yourself. This is an A race. This is just kind of a, a level setting race. Mm-hmm. And I have to tell you, for the first time in several years, uh, I I ran and I finished. Uh, I had a poor time than I expected. Mm-hmm. Just to put it bluntly, I did not run as well as I expected. And you know what? That happens. It happens to every runner, even experienced runners. And so now that the goal is to kind of take a step back, reassess, and then kind of be honest with myself for where I am, where my fitness is, and then what workouts need to be done to get to, to get me where I want to be in Sacramento, which is more my A race. Right. Right. And it's still, you know, what, 24 weeks until then or something like that. So, Correct. so yeah, you got plenty of time before, before your big, you know, target race in December. So that's good. Um, yeah, I think I was, I was talking with an athlete that I just started coaching, um, uh, a runner. And, and I was mentioning that a lot of times I'll use phrases like you do this at 5k pace, do this at 10k pace, um, during workouts, right. You know, do, do, you know, five by three minutes at 10k pace or whatever it happens to be. And I said, that needs to be the pace at which you could run a 10K today under these current conditions on the course that you are running. Correct. You know, and, and, and I think a lot of times we'll say, oh, okay, at 10K pace, that's my goal pace for this particular time. And so, so I think that, that what that does is it gives you a very um, uh, real check-in to exactly what your 10K pace and your 5K pace and those things are right now, which is good. I mean, I think that's, that, that, that's obviously good information to have, and you can dial in your workouts better. Yeah, and, and and also I share that story to kind of say this too. You know, I, I think one of the biggest mistakes a lot of runners, or really endurance athletes in general, make is sometimes we're not always honest with ourselves with where we are. We work hard, we put in the mileage, yeah. um, but sometimes it takes a little longer than we expect. Mm-hmm. You know, to to be where we want to be. Mm-hmm. And the biggest mistake you can make is to explain away a a I shouldn't say a lack of fitness, but maybe when you're not quite where you want to be. And the, the best tactic to take is to always be honest with yourself and say, here's where I am. Mm-hmm. Now let's start from there and we'll, we'll build moving forward rather than kind of living in a, in a state of denial. Yeah. And then two months later saying, okay, maybe I am, this is where I am. Yeah. Yeah. You know, cause it really just kind of sets you back even further. Um, so a couple of people who did treat this like a races were Bernard mm-hmm. Legat and Stephanie Bruce. Um, yes, and so so let's talk a little bit about the the race at large. So so Bernard Legat, uh, uh, forty three years old. He is my age. Uh, last year Incredible. he was uh, last year he's he was forty two. He came and finished fifth in the race last year. Ran like twenty eight forty eight something like that. Uh, set the Masters course record. Um, and he's no slouch. He's a five time Olympian. He's a two time uh, medalist in the Olympic fifteen hundred. Um, 
and uh, he was a pacer during the Breaking Two project um, yep. um, last year, um, and and has just continued to 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 compete at a very high level. Um, he after finishing fifth last year came back and said, you know what. I want to win this race next year, and he actually set it as a target, yeah. um, and said said I want to uh, I want to do this. He he was quoted afterwards. He said I was fifth last year and I wasn't satisfied. Um, I'm going to. I told race organizers I'm going to come back. I want to win this. This, um, and then he said that he hadn't raced since March, and his his, his entire focus was on the Peachtree Road Race here. So mm-hmm. he's won I want to say 15 um, national titles, but this was actually his first road racing title yeah. um, that that he won here at age 43. Um, so what do you think about Bernard Legat? So the first thing that stood out in my mind, so being an, an Atlanta native and having run this race really for the last 15 years or so, it's amazing that now, I mean, the Peachtree's always been big, right? It's been the biggest yeah. amateur race really, you know, in, in the country. Um, but it's, it's amazing. the largest 10K in the world, period. Right. Yeah. But it's amazing to see professionals want to run this race and come here and win yeah, it. And it's, cool. it, and They've all, we've always had really fast people at the top, but they were here more for the prize money. It, it, it was it did not have the same prestige as it does now, mm-hmm. you know. And that a lot of that starts with ATC kind of working to get, make this the 10K championship, yeah. you know, race. So that to me is the really cool thing is that we go from the Petrie enticing people by saying, "Hey, we'll pay you a lot of money if you win or you get top three to enticing people just with the prestige of the race and the aura yeah. of the race. And so that, to me, is really cool. That's a good point. Yeah, you know, and, and, and I think it's an important point to keep in mind because – so he ran 28. He ran almost the, the identical time that he ran last year. Um, he ran 28-48. Uh, um, uh, no, 28-45. Um, and and um, so very similar to the time that he ran last year. Um, that time is is slower than the winning times were a decade or so ago. Correct. Um, and and so it used to be that we had faster runners coming in, but like you said, they were coming in for the paycheck and for the appearance fee and all that sort of thing. Um, and and that was one of the big changes that the Peachtree Road Race made just a couple of years ago is that they said it's July Fourth race. It's a celebration of of the birthday of the United States. Let's make it a a, a more of an American race, and let's, right. let's make that at the pro level as well. Um, and so then a year or two after that, and so they quit paying appearance fees to foreign athletes. And then uh, a year or two after that, they said, let's, let's make it the, the U.S. 10K Road Championship. And they've done that. And so I, I, I think that the, their press release around that said, you know, we're, we're kind of leaning into the whole America's birthday, red, white, and blue aspect of this race right? Um, by making it the 10K Championship. Um, and, I, and I think that's cool. And I, and I, so it means that the, time, the winning times are now slower. Um, but yet it also means like you're saying that, that, that people target the race. Um, and, and I think that that's pretty cool. Um, and I think that's, that's, that's a worthwhile trade-off. And another thing too is, you know, when I would talk to spectators who, who, who watched the race, they said, oh yeah, the winners came in and then I went and grabbed a cup of coffee and then came back and watched you because there's just a huge <laughs> gap between the first, you know, five or six or 10 yeah. or however many elites there were. Yeah. And then, like, 20th place, right? Yeah. Now it's much more – I mean, it's a full field from 1 to 50, yeah. so to speak. Yeah. Um, and that that's pretty cool that we have more very, very high-quality runners running this race um, and really taking it seriously and really kind of, you know, pushing it forward and, and moving it forward in, in terms of how prestigious it is, what it means to run the race. And just like a lot of sporting events are, you don't you don't understand it until you're there. You know, and then once you're there, you realize this is what the pool is. This is what makes this magical. This is what makes Boston Marathon so special. This is what makes Kona so special. Things like that. Um, 
so I I've really enjoyed to see it kind of grow in its and its prestige and also kind of its depth. Well, to be now, now to be fair though, um, the number of people who ran between thirty minutes and thirty two minutes mm-hmm. was higher back in the day. Okay. Um. Uh. And and for whatever reason, and I'm I'm not sure exactly why that was. Um. And and you know Benji Durden, for example, posted the results of the 1987. I want to say it was Peachtree Road Race, and mm-hmm. and the number of people that that uh, ran, like I said, between thirty and thirty-two minutes. Mm-hmm. So so in that block, um, you know, thirty something or thirty-one something. Um, there was a lot more people then who who ran in that block, and so so th- those folks, whether they exist or not, or whether they have other options or other things they're focused on, whatever it happens to be. Um, uh, you know, I, I I don't know why why that particular block of people has gone down. Um, but I do think it's interesting that, that, you know, so the times have gotten a little bit slower, but yet I think people are targeting the race and they say, I want to win the Peachtree Road Race. Mm-hmm. I think that's cool. I think, yeah. And like I said, I think that's a worthwhile trade-off. Um, now, now to say, um, to, to talk a little bit more, more about the, the, the pro races there, Bernard Legat ran 28.45. Uh, second place was Heron Legat, and I've seen conflicting reports as to whether they're related. Okay. One one thing I said saw said that they were cousins. Another thing I saw said that there was no relation. It doesn't really matter. Um, he was a couple seconds back in twenty eight forty eight. Tyler Pinnell from Zap Fitness, um, who really pressed the pace from about the five mile mark forward. Uh, he was third in twenty eight forty nine. He's finished second or third there a couple of times before. Um, uh, the winner on the women's side was uh, Stephanie Bruce. Um, Stephanie Bruce, who is 34-year-old uh, mother of two. She has two kids, two and four. Uh, she ran 32-21, um, and she caught up with Alephine Tulyamuk, the defending champion, who really had pressed the race a lot from 5K forward, um, right around the five-and-a-half-mile mark, right as that, turn, that left turn on the 10th Street, the one turn on the course. Um, uh, caught her uh, with uh, with less than or about a half mile to go there, um, and uh, and was able to run away from her there, um, and and beat her by about four or five seconds there. Um, and then third place was Sarah Hall. I said last week on the uh, the podcast I wouldn't bet on Sarah Hall because she was coming off of a one oh nine PR in the half marathon in Australia three or four days prior. Yeah, I was super impressed with Sarah Hall running as fast and as strongly and as aggressively as she did, as a matter of fact. And so, so yeah, she ends up being uh, being third in thirty two forty one. Um, so yeah, uh, thirty two twenty one for 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 Stephanie Bruce, thirty two twenty eight for for uh, Alephine Tulliamuk, and thirty two forty one for Sarah Hall. So, what do you think about the women's race? Uh, I for, so like you, my first takeaway was. I couldn't believe how strong Sarah Hall ran. Yeah, I mean she's been on fire recently after having a, a, a tough go for a little while. And this is and 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 this is her last race in this cycle. She's going to take a little bit of a break, they said, and then she's going to build up for for probably a late fall marathon. She's probably going to go back out and try and defend her U.S. marathon title uh, in December. That would so, make sense because yeah. if you're taking off now, it would be really tough to come back for like a Chicago, for yeah, example. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then my other big takeaway was that the favorite got run down. I mean, it was, mm-hmm. I mean, she was the pretty heavy favorite, and oh, yeah. then she, she got run down and still finished second. I mean, it wasn't like she had a poor race, so that was that was pretty exciting as well. Yeah, yeah. No, as, as soon as I mean, so I, I was watching on TV, mm-hmm. and I was reminded, by the way, of, of of I I said I think on the podcast last week that that I haven't watched on TV in a long time. I was reminded watching on TV why I haven't watched on TV in so long. It's because the commentary is horrendous. Um, yeah. The, so the commentary is basically as bad as the commentary would be if you asked me 
to do the commentary for like the Falcons versus the Saints. Fantastic. You know, I would, I mean, lo- <laughs> I would love to hear your thoughts on that. <laughs> but, but you know, imagine, imagine like, so, so you go out and play and it's like, oh yeah, that guy just threw the ball. No. Oh. And, and so, you know how the race, I mean, I know how the sport works. I know what first downs are and penalties are and all that sort of thing, but I just don't know any of the players or anything. Or and, you don't know like the internal workings for right. why so-and-so surges at the 5k mark. You're like, oh, there they go. And there's no right. like second level or 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 like takeaways. or like if something happens, I just go whoa really loud, because yeah. <laughs> um, that's literally what the commentary was. Um, Wait, and, Scott. And, and, yeah. and 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 you would see, um, and and like one of the commentators, anytime there was a reference to something, he would say that kind of reminds me of one time in the Peachtree Road Race twenty years. Ago. So he was clearly like kind of trying to show off that he knew stuff, right? But he didn't really know all that much, right? Um, and so anyway, the commentary was 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 horrendous. But anyway, <laughs> but 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 that's one of the reasons why I suppose I haven't watched it in a long time. But anyway, yeah. um, uh, and like I said, it, it it wasn't that the people were bad people. It's just that they don't know a whole lot about running. They pay attention to running one day a year, and that day is July fourth. Yeah, generally when people go into sports broadcasting, what they mean is they want to be the next Monday Night Football commentary, <laughs> right? Guy, right, not the right. next for sure road race for sure. Commentator. Um, but uh, but anyway, watching uh, watching the coverage, you know, seeing uh, Alafine Tuliamuk push and pull away, I pretty much kind of presumed the race was over. I was I was like, you know, this is what she does. She's a super mm-hmm. strong runner. Um, and like I said last week, she's been a brick wall. Um, but Stephanie Bruce stayed patient and really reeled her in. And and even when she caught her, I was I was like, okay, yeah, that's great that she caught her. But she she she. Uh, burned all her matches trying to catch her, and then Stephanie Bruce ran away from her. Um, it was brilliant. Um, so she was talking, uh, Stephanie Bruce was to the press afterwards, and she said, quote, it was a long time coming. Um, if you just keep believing in yourself, one day it will come true. This might be the highlight of my career so far, unquote. So pretty cool, actually, you know, talking about That's people. fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Talk, talk about people who focusing on the Peachtree Road Race, uh, you know, it might be the highlight of my career so far. Um, so, yeah. Uh, psyched for Bernard Legat and Stephanie Bruce, so congrats to them. Um, uh, Dan- Daniel Romanchuk won the uh, men's wheelchair race in 1839. He just missed the uh, the course record by a second. 1839 for for a 10k, uh, just incredible. Yeah. Um, and uh, he's only 19 years old. He won last year as well. A uh, friend of the podcast, Brad Smith, uh, was in the wheelchair race, um, and uh, I interviewed him a couple of years ago. He uh, finished 15th in the wheelchair division in 2901. Um, Susanna Scaroni um, won a very close women's wheelchair race in 2248. She was only one second in front of Tatiana McFadden, who has mm-hmm. won the race a couple of times. Um, uh, the men's race and the women's race in the wheelchair divisions broke out completely differently. Uh, the the women's race was really tactical and two people kind of going back and forth and drafting off one another and and surging and 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 retreating and all that sort of thing and the men's race was just Dana Romanchuk just going out there and blasting away from the very start and just just running away with it um, and uh, but they are both from Urbana Illinois uh, and we've talked about um, different training groups mm-hmm. before um, there is a very healthy and vibrant training group for wheelchair racers in Urbana Illinois. Um, around the University of Illinois, and so they both train in that group and, and count that as their place of residence, which I think is pretty cool there. Um, Kyle Pease won the push assist division, um, followed by Ricardo Aranda and Justin Knight, um, the men's. Uh, Sherry Adams, then Lizzie Kriske, and Naomi Hicks uh, were the, uh, the the top three in the push assist division for uh, for, for, for women. Um, and then to be also pointed out, uh, a couple other uh, – 
performances uh, by a couple of 93-year-olds. Um, 93-year-old man named Lamar Perlis was the oldest man in the race, um, and he ran 226.02. Um, and then Betty Lindbergh, um, she's a few weeks older. She's also 93 years old, so she was the oldest person in the race. Uh, she ran 152.06. Um, a couple of years ago, Betty Lindbergh set the world record for the 90 to 95 age group in the 800 meters, I found when I was Googling her after the race. But um, both of them, according to the results that are right now online, are listed as third in their age group out of three um, in the 90-plus age group. Um, at least looking at Lamar Perlis's results, I'm pretty sure that the two people that are listed as beating him in the age group aren't actually over 90. One of them ran an hour, and one of them ran an hour and 16 minutes. Um, I think they're not legit. I think either they, they there was a typo when they were signing up, or probably more likely um, it was bandits running with other people's numbers or something like that. That so. sounds a lot more likely, or a lot of people jump in at like the five – or not the five, but like the three mile mark yeah. or so. Yeah, you know, um, to avoid the crowd. So, so, so we'll we'll give you an update on that some other time. But I'm pretty sure that both of them probably won that 90 plus age group. Um, but uh, but but we'll have to see when they actually certify the results uh, in in a month or so. There is so much. Um, banditing and people giving their numbers to other people and stuff like that that happens in the Peachtree Road Race um, that it takes them a while to certify the results. Um, it's particularly at those high-end um, uh, age groups in the 70 to 75 or 70 to 74, 75 to 79 age groups mm-hmm. that you end up seeing a lot of people who finish in the top five in the age group who are in their 40s because they got the number from their dad and they didn't bother to transfer the number and, and they ran – you know, 48 minutes or something like that, which would be pretty damn good for a 75-year-old. Right, um, and when and you're so. running a 48-minute, you know, 10K, for example, you're not thinking about, oh, no, this is going to throw off the results. You're just in right. wave M or whatever thinking, mm-hmm. ah, I'm just going to go enjoy the peach tree and right. be. Right, um, And so, so yeah, it definitely throws off the results for those, 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 those older ones. So one of many reasons why uh, if you if you are using someone else's number, you should go through the official transfer process. Um, so, so, yeah. Um, any other comments about the results? I have a couple other things I do want to say. <laughs> uh, not too much. The only th- other thing I can, I'll add is that, uh, f- friend of the pod, Nicole D. Makira, she ran it, um, as well. So mm-hmm. I think she was more, this is like her last, um, race in kind of a long training cycle coming was, off of she Boston. Was, I want to say 19th. Is that Correct. what she was? Yeah. And then she ran high 34s, I know. Um, um, which she posted on in social media that wasn't quite what she was expecting, but I think that's partly because you're coming off a superb performance in oh, Boston. Yeah. And as we talked about on this podcast before, you only have so many um, A races in you, usually right. only one or two a year. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, other Zap Fitness athletes, since we're talking about Nicole, mm-hmm. and, and we, we had mentioned that Tyler finished third. Um, there was another uh, Zap Fitness athlete that finished in the, in the, in the top ten in the men's race. And then a third uh, Zap Fitness athlete finished. I want to say about twelfth or something like that. So, so pretty strong pretty good. day for Zap. Yeah. So, so pretty good outing for for for, the, for them. Um, you know, I had also mentioned, and I think it's worth mentioning that that um, that the course um, it goes downhill than uphill. And I had said that you need to be conservative. I talked about this last week in the in the podcast when you weren't here, Patrick. Um, and I know you've listened to the podcast multiple times, you know, from the time you weren't here. I mean, obviously, I, I have, yes. yeah, yeah. And I know, I know you told me that you were disappointed that I didn't give my uh, my my solo movie review. Uh, but you know, maybe we can say that for some other time. Um, but uh, but anyway, um, I had said that you need to be conservative, um, and I had a couple of people kind of ask me about that and talk to me about that afterwards, and and 
um, perhaps I should have been a little bit clearer when I when I said this, but when I said be conservative, that doesn't mean that you're necessarily going to negative split the race. Um, and and in fact, um, uh, you probably won't negative split the race. It's just that some people tend to go out too fast and end up running these 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 massive positive splits, which are too much. And so, with a course that starts downhill and then goes uphill in the second half, you would expect a positive split. Um, and I think that's perfectly normal. But what you want to avoid is having these massive um, uh, positive splits, these massive uh, splits where your second 5K is faster than your first one. So, uh, to wit, with that in mind, um, Bernard Lebgat, the winner of the men's race, he ran his first uh, 5K in 14.14, and then he ran the second 5K in 14.31. Um, that sounds about right. And so so that was that was six seconds per mile of drop-off in the second half, or that's about 2%, right? Um, so it's so a pretty even splits given, given that, the the, the, the way this course is set up and, and even the 5k breakdown or you're cutting it in half is a little, uh, misleading because the first, th- you know, two and a half miles are downhill mm-hmm. and then miles four and five are uphill. And then the last half mile or so is mm-hmm. screaming yeah. downhill. Yeah. Good point. Good um, point. so I can tell you like, like usually the, the, the splits first half to second half, they look a lot worse if you were to take it at the five and a half mile mark, so to speak. Good point. Yeah, um, for and then sure. you can kind of see your GPS uh, overall pace dip significantly from the five and a half to the six point two. For sure. Mark. For sure. Um, Stephanie Bruce, winner of the women's race, um, she had a fourteen per second per mile drop off. That's about four point five percent. Okay. Um, and so I w- I would say that's about the maximum you'd want to do. Um, you know, an example of of somebody in the pro race that that got it wrong. Um, is somebody that if you watched it on TV, if you watched the replay that night, or if you watched it live like I did, Augustus Mayo um, went blasting out the first two miles, and, and he was, and the field let him go, yeah, um, and he was he was gone. He had uh, more than a fifty meter lead uh, for the first couple of miles, uh, and they caught him right about the five k point because that the the uphill begins right about the three mile mark, and then the five k is I want to say just near the start uh, or, or uh, um, near the start of that hill, so you go up just a little bit of the uphill before you get the five k mark. But Correct. anyway, he did. So he did the first five k in fourteen eleven. So by that point, he was only about three seconds in front of the pack that Bernard Legat and everybody else was in. He did the second half in fifteen thirty three. He ended up finishing, I want to say, about twelfth or thirteenth uh, in twenty nine forty four. That's a twenty eight second per mile drop off. That's ten point two percent. It's too much, right? Um, and so, so he got it wrong. Um, 10.2% is, is far too much for it to be dropping off, even, even with the changes in the course there. So, um, he is, he, he was capable of running faster than 29.44 on this particular day, but, but he kind of got it wrong because he was not conservative enough in those first opening downhill miles. Um, so, so yeah, just to kind of reiterate that, I think, I think that, that there's obviously literally thousands of examples, I am sure from the age group ranks of that, that, that would bear that out as well. But just looking at, at the examples from, from the pro ranks, I think it bears out the advice that you do in particularly miles two and three, you have to be fairly conservative because in miles four and five, you have those uphills, uh, that can really sting you if you've gone out too hard in the, in, in the first three miles. Absolutely. And, and I'll add a few kind of quick points to that as well. So, you know, one comparison I've, I've heard people make is when, when folks were talking to me about the Peachtree leading up to the race is they'd say, hey, we listen to the podcast on the Boston Marathon, which in a, in a general sense has a similar profile where it's the first half is down, the second half is up. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would argue it, it is also very different pacing for a 10K 
and a, a full marathon. Mm-hmm. You know, a full marathon, you really are going from much more of the even split. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but a 10K, for example, if you go out and you go so conservative that you're actually even splitting mm-hmm. or even negative splitting, mm-hmm. you've almost just not used the downhill mm-hmm. to to the point you, that, that allows you to get your kind the, of your in the, fastest in, in the, time. In the Peachtree 10K. In the Peachtree 10K, yeah. yes. Yeah, yeah let, me, let me be clarify there. Yeah. You know, um, so there is a little bit of a difference when taking into account a 10K versus a marathon. Also, when you die in a 10K, you you die for two miles, yeah. not for 10 or, right. or six. Right. Uh, so there's a little bit of, of individual difference or variance there. Another thing I would say is there's also individual differences in different runners. So I can tell you the we had one runner who um, just about even split it, but he is a very, very unique runner. He can run like a 53-second quarter. He's an, even as in, in during his Ironman training and his marathon training, that is smoking fast. Mm-hmm. If you've ever seen him around, run around the track and run, you know, like the final 400 of, of an interval workout, he can blitz out of. Who is that? Charlie. Oh, really? So running oh, uphill, he, about 40, yeah, okay, he can, right. he can kind of release a lot of energy and create a lot of power quickly to kind of survive the uphills and run a relatively even split. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's very different from somebody who's much more of a someone who's much more uh, of a just kind of a I shouldn't say a smooth runner, but is does not have that same ability to generate a lot of force very quickly for a short bursts of time. Mm-hmm. They don't have that same well they can go into to really kind of motor up the hill necessarily. Shout out to Charlie. We gave him a shout out a couple of weeks ago. We'll give him a shout out again. Charlie is running the uh, the New York City Marathon on behalf of Kilometer Kids, raising money for the Atlanta Track Club's uh, youth running program. And uh, he uh, ran 35 days in a row, ran at least 3.5 miles a day. Uh, and the last day of those, that 35-mile day string was the Peachtree Peach Road Race. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, so, yeah, I'm glad you mentioned – I'm glad he happened to come up there uh, so, so we could kind of give him a shout-out there. But, yeah, by all means, look him up on Facebook and, uh, and, and donate to his efforts to raise money and run the New York City Marathon for Kilometer Kids. Um, and, and all that – yeah, absolutely. And uh, – you know, all that is to say is you also need to take into account individual differences, right? People mm-hmm. have different strengths in terms of running hills and not, um, and your ability to generate a lot of power and a lot of force when you push off the ground. For sure, for um, sure, for sure. I, and, and, but but I would I would I agree with you totally. Um, but I but I I would tweak that within still saying there is there is no good strategy that involves running the first 5k of the Peachtree road race as hard as you possibly can. And then hanging on for the last 5k. Correct. Correct. <laughs> correct. Yeah. Uh, this is the point I'm making is more like the disclaimer or the appendix at the end of the book. It's not the book right. itself. The book is run a smart race. <laughs> right. You right. know, um, you never want to have a, a significant positive split for sure. Um, so yeah, that's, those are kind of the, the, the few points I wanted to make there. All right, so for the last word here on the Peachtree Road Race, I actually want to do something a little bit different. So I uh, have an athlete that I coach who uh, is a podcast listener and is one of the most devoted fans of professional running and track and field uh, that I know. Uh, her, na- her name is Michelle Frank. Um, and Michelle uh, is a fan of Allie Kiefer, as you're here. And uh, she volunteered with the Atlanta Track Club to actually go to the airport and meet the elite runners as mm-hmm. they were arriving. Uh, and she was telling me about it afterwards, uh, and she had this really good opportunity. And I said, you know what? we got to record this and put this on the podcast. And so I gave her a call a couple of days ago and, and recorded about 10 minutes of conversation with her in which she's going to tell us a little bit about 
um, the uh, the the experience she had picking up some of the athletes and hanging out with them uh, when they were coming in for the Peachtree Road Race. So um, let me go ahead and hit play on that right now. All right, okay. so 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 here we have Michelle Frank. She is a super fan and a member of the Atlanta Track Club and someone who volunteered to help out with the pro race during the uh, Peachtree Road Race. Michelle, tell us what you did. So I volunteered to pick up the elites and bring them from the airport back to the hotel. Cool, cool. And so did you actually pick them up in your car or, or pick them up from the airport? How did it work? Yeah, so this year was a little bit different. The host hotel was not the Ritz or the Whitley. Um, it was changed to the JW Marriott, and about the day before everybody was coming in, they decided not to use all the fancy Mercedes bins that they had lined up, and we had already signed waivers, and we were going to get the athletes on BARDA <laughs> just since uh, the Lenox station is across the street. So we ended up parking our cars and greeting them at the airport and putting them on MARTA. <laughs> All right, very good. So so the original plan had been to use, like, fancy Mercedes-Benzes, and then the last-minute plan was changed to just pick them up and put them on MARTA? <laughs> yeah, that's correct. And I think it was really smart. I mean, it was about 42 minutes on the train, and we could see the traffic, you know, bumper to bumper going north um, coming home. So I was down there at 3, 4, 5, 6, 7 o'clock. Mm-hmm. So these guys didn't have to wait in traffic, and most of them were hungry. Right on. <laughs> Tired perfect. from flying. So it's a good idea. Perfect, perfect. So so you went from being a driver to kind of being an escort, I guess, right? Yeah, that was a little weird. <laughs> <laughs> so so tell us about then, uh, so, so you showed up, and did you have a particular person you were supposed to meet or, or what? Yeah, so I specifically wanted to pick an alley keeper. I was pretty clear about that and um, was told that that was not a problem. So I headed down to the airport to pick her up, and um, right as I was getting on the train, Delta updated that her flight was going to be two and a half hours late, which was a little crazy because when I left work about 20 minutes before, it said she was on time. So I decided to just go down and see if anybody else needed help. Um, I got there a little bit early, and one of the other volunteers was there, and he was waiting for a few people to come in. And I was standing with him, and Sarah and Ryan Hall kind of just walked through the door. Very cool. And that was pretty cool. Very cool. (laughs) And you're a fan. Yeah, I mean, I knew Sarah had just run a half marathon in Australia, so I was doing the numbers in my head and figured they've been flying directly from Australia. They've been traveling for at least 24 hours. So I ended up just offering to kind of get them onto the train. Um, The other volunteer had told him he needed to wait for another elite to come in and Sarah kind of looked at him and said, well, is it hard to get there by ourselves? And I was like, well, let me show you guys where to go. So that's what I did. Cool, cool. And so you had that, you had that extra two and a half un- uh, uh, unplanned hours all of a sudden, and so, so, so you end up escorting them. And then you get to the train, and what happened at the train? Yeah, so I had extra time, and we got to the train, and it was the correct train. And Sarah kind of looked at me and said, wait, you're coming, right? And I figured I had almost exactly enough time, so I hopped on. Um, I, they were extremely talkative. Um, If I had just been traveling for 24 hours, I probably would have just gone to sleep. But uh, I spoke to them a lot about just running and their traveling and their kids and my running. And kind of at the same time was calling the track club elite coordinator to make sure somebody could greet us at the Lennox platform because I knew I needed to hop back on the southbound train and get back as soon as possible. So it was pretty cool. Very cool. cool. They were nice people? Yeah. They were crazy nice people. Um, 
super laid back, super interested for some reason in my life when I really just wanted to hear about their life. Mm. Um, I did actually ask Ryan, you know, in all of his years of running professionally and to Olympics, if anybody had ever greeted them and put them on a train. And he said, no, this is a little bit unique. So <laughs> that was pretty funny. <laughs> right on. Very cool. Very good. Um, did I, okay, so this is a sort of a strange question, but did you talk to them about running? I mean, you, you said, you said that question you just asked, but, but did you, did you get a chance to say like, Hey, tell me about your training or anything like that? Um, so I asked her a little bit about the half in Australia mm -hmm. and she ran a PR, so she was pretty happy about that. Mm -hmm. And then I was kind of hoping she would tell me what her plans were. So I said, I don't think you've announced the fall marathon yet. Have you? And she said, no, I can't really announce it yet. So I was kind of bummed, but um, I tried. <laughs> right so she's about to take a big break. Um, they just moved the flagstaff, and she said instead of going on a vacation this year um, after Peachtree, they were going to go home and just try to do nothing and finish unpacking. Very so, good. Very yeah. good. And take care of their four kids. Yeah, their four kids um, were staying with Ryan's parents. Yeah, we talked about all this. <laughs> um <laughs> So they were excited to get back to them and kind of just get settled um, in their new life and flagstaff, I guess. I'm sure. I'm sure. Very good. And so then you hop back on the train and ride back to the airport, right? That is correct. I rode back to the airport, um, had about five minutes to spare once I got there. And uh, we had all texted the people that we were picking up. So I had sent Allie a message earlier in the day, um, and I just got to the escalators and baggage claim and said, I see your flight's landed, you know, can I get you a cold drink or a snack or anything? She asked for a bottle of water, so I grabbed that, and then she pretty much came up the escalator a few minutes later, so. Right on, very cool, very cool. Did you see any other pros in addition to, to Allie Kiefer in the halls? Yeah, so when we got back to the hotel, um, the Bowerman Track Club people were there in the lobby checking in ahead of us, which was kind of interesting because their flight wasn't coming in for another 15 minutes after Allie, but I guess they had come in early and um, hopped a train and just kind of missed each other in the airport. Mm -hmm. So that was Gwen Jorgensen and um, who Chris Derrick, and that was pretty cool. They were all kind of, Gwen was with her husband, and they were checking in ahead of us. So, Very yeah. cool. Very cool. Did you get to have a conversation with Allie the same way you did with the Halls? Yeah, so Allie was sort of like an open book. <laughs> that was really fun talked on the train the whole time and after she checked in she wanted to put her luggage down and asked me just to make sure um, that the food there was something she wanted to eat she had known that a few people had gone to Whole Foods to get dinner so I told her you know it's not far but it's also not walkable and I had the time so I figured if there wasn't anything there that she wanted to eat I would just drive her to Whole Foods and drive her back and then head home so we ended up um, going to the hospitality suite, and she liked the food, and there wasn't really a group of people for her to sit with, so she asked me if I wanted to stay and eat dinner with her, so that's what I did. <laughs> very cool, very cool. That, that, was I, more, that was more time to talk with Allie Keeper. <laughs> no, exactly. That, that, that turned out even better than you thought it would, because like you said, you yeah, had actually... Yeah, it was pretty awesome. Yeah, you, you had specifically requested Allie Keeper because you're a fan, right? I am. I just... You know, the thing about these elites that post on social media is you kind of feel like you know their life story. So talking to her was really easy, um, and she was really excited to be in Atlanta and 
she started asking me about the course and race strategy and I was thinking, no, no, like I really shouldn't be talking to you about how to run this race. And I said, you know, my coach says just don't go out too fast. So um, it's pretty much all I had to say. Right but on. Good, I did thing, hear good thing you had listened to the <laughs> podcast last weekend to uh, to pick up on that. I run. had listened to the podcast, yes. <laughs> I did actually ask her, I sent her a message after the race just to see what she thought. Mm-hmm. Um, and she said she thought the course was pretty hard. It's mm-hmm. really human. Mm-hmm. And she went for broke and learned that she can do that and survive. So I thought that was pretty good Right on. feedback. <laughs> right on. Very good. Very good. Well, cool. Would you do it again? Would you pick them all up again? I think I know the answer to that question. Um, totally. You're going to volunteer again next year? Yeah, and hopefully also for the trials. Right on. Oh, yeah, definitely. Very good. Very I'll good. be the star volunteer for, you know, shuttling elites to and from there. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. We'll clearly do it very well. Uh, well done, Michelle. Well, thanks for talking to us. Sort of an interesting experience that you got to have there around the PC Road Race, and uh, so we appreciate you sharing it with us. All right, so that's what Michelle Frank had to say about picking up the athletes. Pretty cool about her getting to hang out and all that sort of thing. So uh, I imagine if some of you now want to be the person to pick up the athletes next year, I don't blame you. Uh, I think it does sound pretty cool there. Um, but, but yeah, obviously pretty uh, pretty interesting and, and unique experience that she got to have there picking up those athletes. So thanks, Michelle, for talking to us. Um, all right. We're uh, moving on here to talk about the other kind of big piece of news this week, and that is the start of the Tour de France. The Tour de France began yesterday on the 7th of, of July. Uh, as I said last week, it began a week later than it normally does. And actually, the first stage began a couple of hours earlier than it normally does because they were trying to avoid a conflict with the, uh, the World Cup games that were taking place in Russia. Uh, and so the first stage started super early Eastern time yesterday morning, uh, around before 5 a.m. yesterday morning. Uh, the first stage was won by a Colombian sprinter named Fernando Gaviria. Um, it's his first Tour de France. It's the first time that somebody won a stage in their very first stage in the race since 2004. A guy named Fabian Cancellara won uh, the opening prologue back in 2004 in his first ever time riding a bike in the Tour de France. Um, and um, like I said, he's Colombian. He's a sprinter. Most Colombians are, are climbers. Um, but And so so he's he's of a slightly different ilk there. Um, very uh, very exciting rider. Won four sprints last year or four stages last year in the, the Tour of Italy. And then won, I want to say, four or five stages in the Tour of California this year as well. So I uh, look forward to seeing more things from him. He may well win stage two, which is going on right now. Um, I mentioned last week towards the very end of the podcast that Chris Froome, uh, defending champion and three or four time winner, uh, had been disinvited by the ASO, by the Armory Sports Organization, the people who direct the race. Um, and, and that was sort of setting up a showdown a little bit between him, his team and the governing body of the sport, uh, the UCI. Um, not coincidentally, a day later, um, uh, literally a day later after he was disinvited by the ASO, um, the uh, UCI, which is the governing body of cycling, and the WADA, the World Anti-Doping Authority, um, uh, cleared him. They said, okay, this this levels of salbutamol that he had in his blood um, when we tested him at the Vuelta a España last year, um, we're changing our minds, and that's no longer an adverse analytical finding. Um, so... Um, you'll recall, and I talked about this at length on an earlier podcast, and so we don't need to go through it again, that there's a limit, and the limit basically is 1,000. Um, you can have uh, a level of 1,000 in your blood, um, of salbutamol in your blood, um, and he tested at 2,000. 
Um, now, his contention was that he was in the midst of a grand tour. He was dehydrated. There was all sorts of other stressors on his body. And as a result of that, it was a false high. It was like a false positive that it wasn't 2000. And so he submitted and his team submitted 1500 pages worth of, of evidence to say, no, this is a false positive. My actual reading was about 1400. Um, so 1400 uh, was what my actual reading would have been um, had all conditions been normal. Now, astute listener, you were undoubtedly saying, well, that 1,400 is still higher than 1,000, ergo, shouldn't he still be banned? Shouldn't he still be uh, suspended here? Um, basically, they said, well, that's within the margin of error. So 1,400, 1,000, that's within the margin of error. He was in the third week of a grand tour here. We're not going to call this an adverse analytical finding, and they cleared him, uh, both the WADA and the UCI. And given that, uh, the ASO said, okay, you know, you've cleared him. You said it's okay for him to ride. He can ride now. And so he started the Tour de France yesterday. Um, he was booed at the team presentation on Thursday, um, and fans aren't too happy. A lot of fans aren't too happy that he's going to be there. Uh, they actually said they're employing extra security now, both his team and the Tour at large, um, to try and uh, make sure it's secure because they have somebody riding the race that a lot of fans aren't too happy about that he's riding the race here. That's um, terrifying. So, yeah. Uh, maybe in a bit of of, uh, of kind of poetry, he did have a crash in stage one with about eight kilometers to go. He, uh, he was shoved off the road and crashed into the grass, but he got up very quickly and was able to remount and, uh, and, and keep on going here. So... Uh, anyway, you have thoughts about about Chris Froome or any of that? Yeah, so a, a couple things. Um, one, you know, one thing you hear a lot of times in in you know, many realms of life is you'll hear, "Well, art is not an exact science," or "Well, <laughs> you know, buying a house is not an exact science." Honestly, science isn't an exact science, <laughs> um, and this is something that the some. Sometimes a lot of folks have a hard time wrapping their head around because they think, "Well, what if if you take it, your levels jump, and voila." You know, you cheated. It's a direct line of correlation. We we can clearly connect. You know, um, nefarious behavior with these you know increased levels, but it, it doesn't work that way. Mm-hmm. Um, the human body is a complex organism. We have many different individual differences mm-hmm. in the different hormonal levels we have as we age, as we have different are cir- in different circumstances in life, and it's fascinating to see kind of the game of cat and mouse. Now, I say that as someone who's kind of watching from afar, if I were in cycling, if I were competing, it would not be fascinating. It would be infuriating. Mm-hmm. But, you know, watching from afar, it's kind of fascinating to see how we continue to learn more and more about the human body, you know, what it takes to be a high performer from a chemical perspective, from a, from a physiological perspective, and then how the human body reacts to exercise, to new new supplements, to new chemicals, et cetera. And so that's my first big takeaway is it's just one more, you know, piece of information that says even science isn't an exact science. You're, you're, you're totally right about that, and I couldn't agree more. Um, that being said, um, that's not comforting for somebody who maybe also tested at 1,400 and got suspended. Yep. Do you know what I mean? And yes. so, so, so if you're going to have limits – if you're going to say, you know what, the, the, the limit is 1,000 or the limit is 1,200 or the limit is whatever, they, they make the limit. If that's going to be the limit and if you break the limit, then then you're going to be suspended. If there's going to be that rule there, then the rule should be enforced whether you're the eighth rider on a small team or whether you're the defending Tour de France champion. 
Um, and, and I think that's one thing that kind of drove people crazy. One, that, that his team has the money and that he has the exactly. money to, to, to actually do all of those tests and submit those 1,500 pages worth of stuff. And then two, that they have the influence for the WADA and the UCI to say, you know what, within the margin of error, we're just going to call this one a not an adverse analytical finding. Would they have said that for some domestique on a little small team? Probably not. Right. Um, and, and so if you're going to have the rule, it should be applied evenly. Um, and that was going to be my second point is that, you know, as we know, cycling already has a very high barrier to entry, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it, you know, bicycles are not cheap. You know, it's not it's not a hobby you can have um, without money, you know, or, or access to equipment. And in a way, this just is another barrier to entry for folks that maybe come from maybe a lesser economic perspective or yeah. economic um, background because not only do you need a bike now, you also need a team of lawyers because I'm well, sure that those were not unpaid interns that typed up that yeah. 1500 well, page. Yeah, and, and, and you make an excellent point because because I think a lot of us like to think that, that inside sport, a lot of these frustrations that we have in society mm-hmm. go away. That, you know, you have this, this, I mean, literally the phrase level playing field, right? I mean, it's a sports metaphor, right? You know, like, like you, you, you like to think that you have a level playing field inside of sports, whereas, you know, outside of sports and, and all these other realms of life, well, you know, rich people have it better and rich people have an advantage in, in our country and in the world. Um, but, but inside sports, it's a level playing field. Everybody's equal. Well, maybe not, at least not in cycling. Um, you know, Lance Armstrong, I was listening to his podcast uh, yesterday, and he, he referred to cycling. This is Lance Armstrong, referred to like cycling as the, as the world's most dysfunctional sport. Um, and, and this would certainly be an example of that, you know, that, yeah. that, that it's reflecting some of those sorts of things. So, um, so anyway. And, and to your point, too, to the sport as a whole, you know, to, 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 to enforce rules and kind of build a strong institution of, you know, rule enforcement or law enforcement you you almost need to sacrifice individuals and say well you this may have been an innocent mistake on your part but guess what you still cross the line and so we still have to yeah and move so, forward and, with punishment and, and consequences and if there was ever a sport that needs to do that it's cycling um <laughs> you know in in the in the post-doping era and that's not just a lance armstrong thing lance armstrong was the tip of the iceberg as far as that went um, that the, in the in the eighties and nineties, everybody was on drugs in, right. in in cycling, and that's not that's not an exaggeration. Um, that 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 more than ninety percent of the peloton was using some sort of performance enhancing drugs. If there's any sport that needs <laughs> some amount of of cleaning up, that need, need needs to take some really hard steps in order to improve their image, it's cycling. Um, it, especially when, and, I, and I've said this before on the podcast, so. Some of the other major sports like the NBA, the NFL, or, or basketball and football, they tend to turn a bit more of a blind eye to, like, HGH. But that's totally. because – so HGH helps – well, I shouldn't say use individuals. But, like, you know, those kind of things, they help an NBA player recover so they can better perform in the game. But they still have to make the shot. Mm-hmm. They still have to pass the ball. It's so – it's not the they direct – like They still have to hit the baseball. They still they have, have to hit to the baseball. They still have to, like, hit the – post pattern in football so obviously it helps but there's not a direct correlation between their performance and and, and taking some of the stuff the way there is in track and and cycling at least that's the rationale of the governing boards of of nfl and and, and major league baseball and all or, or what, what i should say is so then i think fans have are a bit more forgiving mm-hmm. um in, in that realm yeah but and to to, to the other point about how you don't want a sport to to have too high a barrier of entry. 
I can tell you a sport where that that has happened is in NASCAR. And, you know, because what happens is as more and more money flood into the sport, it became less about, you know, kind of building a car from scraps like it was in the 50s and 60s to be where you have to have huge amounts of money to build these supercars that go 220. Mm-hmm. And so more and more and more, it just became the only way to, to do the sport is to have money and you have to have money at a young age. Well, who tends to have money at a young age? So it's it's kind of interesting to see some of the parallels there. Um, so, last thing I'll say about about this kind of is on the, on the note of what you're talking about with other sports. So so you know to me, cycling has has addressed this issue, and they're continuing to try and address this issue, and I appreciate that. And, and I think that's a far better approach than say baseball and football, who pretend that they don't have an issue, right? Um, and and say, well, well, you know, we're, we're not going to address it, and, and it's and it's kind of a cycling has kind of gotten a raw deal a little bit with it because by addressing it they they've perpetuated the the image that it's a drug-ridden sport um whereas you know baseball can just say ah we're not really going to address it and 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 therefore they don't have an image of being a sport in which a lot of people use because then there's no headline saying this person tested positive right right um and so 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 i think that's kind of bogus um and that's always been very frustrating to me um but anyway, there's all sorts of parallels. Uh, a couple other I, – I still love the Tour de France. <laughs> yeah. A couple other kind of factoids from the Tour de France, and then we're going to ask Patrick his one question about the Tour de France, which I'll mention more in a second here. Uh, Sylvain Chavanel, uh, who is a French rider who uh, has worn the yellow jersey, has worn the green jersey, worn the polka dotted jersey. Um, um, he uh, started for the 18th year, um, which is a record. Um, he's not the oldest person in the race, but this is his 18th start, um, which – uh, would certainly like to see him finish in in Paris and uh, and get his 18th finish as well. So um, uh, that would make him the record holder for the most starts. Um, there are uh, five Americans in the race, uh, five people from the United States: Chad Haga, Taylor Finney, T.J. Van Garderen, Ian Boswell, and Lawson Craddock. Um, to mention Lawson Craddock real quick, he's wearing number 13. Um, and in cycling, because 13 is bad luck, there's this tradition of if you have number 13, you'll put it upside down on your jersey just kind of as a way of, of thwarting the superstition. Well, That's fantastic. Um, oh, yeah. Um, but as it turns out, 13 was truly bad luck for Lawson Craddock. This is his first time back in the Tour de France in a couple of years. He had a rough year last year, was super excited to come back this year uh, with the uh, with the EF team, the Education First team. Um, but... Uh, he crashed in the feed zone in stage one, uh, crashed literally on his face um, and had to get stitches in his eyebrow after the stage. And so finished the stage with blood running down the side of his face and everything. And then he was sort of sitting crooked on his bike the whole rest of the way after the crash. Um, and it turns out he does have a crack in his shoulder blade. Um, and so he started the stage today, started stage two today with a crack in his shoulder blade. Um, but we'll have to see whether he's able to continue, whether it's too painful for him or, um, whether it's dangerous for other riders. Um, if his shoulder is so painful that he can't control his bike, um, then that becomes dangerous for other riders. And, yeah. and so he's kind of obliged to, 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 to leave after that. Uh, tomorrow is a team time trial. And so maybe he'll, he'll try and make it through the team time trial and, and stop after that because so that he can help out his team leader with that. But, uh, this morning he said, or last night he actually said, uh, quote, right now it's extremely painful. It was really painful out on the road just trying to manage it as best I could. I got incredible support from the team to help me finish. It's difficult. A lot of work goes into these races, especially the tour. Mentally, it's almost harder than physically. I'll try to stay positive, manage the pain as hard as I can. I'm not just going home at the first sign of adversity. So I'll see how I feel tonight, Saturday, how I sleep, how I feel in the morning, get on the bike and see if I can manage it. So... 
as of right now, you know, the, the stage is probably wrapping up about the time we're recording here. Um, uh, don't know whether he was forced to drop out of the stage or not. Again, my, my, my theory is that he's going to drop out after the, the, the team time trial tomorrow. Um, but we'll see. Um, he, uh, he is pledged that for every stage he's able to finish, he will give $100, um, to the, the fundraising efforts for the Houston velodrome, um, which was damaged during hurricane Harvey. So interesting kind of as a, as a, as a self, <laughs> as a, as a, as a self motivator, he says for every stage he, he finishes, he'll give, and you know, and there's, there's 20 total stages. And so he could give up to, you know, $2,000 here to, uh, to this uh, local velodrome. He's from Houston. Okay. Um, so yeah. Um, last thing I'll mention, uh, I was having a conversation with some people, um, uh, about how skinny and small professional cyclists seem to be. Um, and then they mentioned the stats of the average rider yesterday on the, uh, on the broadcast. And I wanted to mention that, um, the, uh, the average rider in the tour de France is 181 centimeters tall, which is just under six feet tall. Uh, 69 kilograms uh, is how much they weigh, which is about 151 pounds. Um, their average age is 29 years and 36 days. Uh, they've ridden three tours to France, or this is their third tour to France, and they've been a pro for nine years. So that goes to show you how, how long they have to be a pro before they actually get into the Tour de France, right? Right. Um, and they said that the person who most uh, most closely matches that average is a South African rider on the team Dimension Data uh, named Reinhard Jensie van Rinsberg. Um, so he is 29 years old. This is his third tour. He's been a pro for nine years, and evidently he's about 151 pounds and, and 181 centimeters tall. So, yeah. All uh, right, that's the guy I'm rooting for. <laughs> <laughs> I can't pronounce his name, but that's the guy I'm rooting for. Van Rinsberg. There you yeah. go. Yeah. Um, he's not going to win. <laughs> okay, well. But, you know. <laughs> I'm a Falcons fan. I'm used to rooting for teams that aren't going to win. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Very good. All right, so last thing we're going to talk about here with the Tour de France. I told Patrick to be ready to ask me any question about the Tour de France that he is a is a non-cycling fan wants to know. Ask your question, Patrick. Uh, my question would be, how on earth do they recover from day to day? Uh, that yeah. is one thing that absolutely fascinates me because I just could not imagine waking up on a Monday and be like, all right, I'm racing today, and then waking up on a Wednesday and being like, I'm still racing today. Yeah, and then waking up a week later, I'm still racing today. Yeah, the yeah. only sport the I mean baseball and basketball kind of have that, but it is not the same no. in terms of like uh physiological output. Um basketball requires a lot of energy, but I mean it's they get usually get two days off between playoff games. Mm-hmm. So I that just fascinates me how in the world they recover and how they stay mentally engaged and emotionally engaged for that long. Yeah. Well, that's part of the challenge. Yeah. You know, um uh Lance Armstrong one time I was reading said recovery is everything in cycling. Um, and, and he's totally right about that. And mm-hmm. so, so there's, there's a few things and, and I didn't know what Patrick's question was going to be beforehand. So I didn't have quite time to organize my answer, but, but so, so, so here are the few things I'm going to say. First thing, um, is that they're always thinking about the next stage when they're in the current stage. Okay. And so, so it's like a chess player. If yeah. You know. Yeah. And so, so a lot of times you'll see people, um, they'll drop out of the back of the pack or they'll let themselves get dropped going up a mountain or something like that. Um, they could keep up if they wanted to, but they're thinking about the next day and the day after that and the day after that, right? And so they're metering out their effort in that sort of way. Um, On flat stages, um, you'll have a lot of riders who will never come out of the pack, and so they're able just to kind of cruise on through and take a pretty easy day on a lot of those flat stages. And so so, so that's part of of it is that you're always thinking about kind of the next stage. You're not going – maximum doing the best you possibly can every single day for the entire tour if you did that you would blow up spectacularly 
Um, and so, so all right, that's so, the other guy I'm rooting for is the guy who does that. <laughs> so, so, so just that, cause I want to see it. So that, that's part of it. And then, and then along those same lines in preparing for the next day, they, they think about that when they're thinking about their nutrition and that sort of thing during the stage. Um, they, they tend to, particularly in the latter half of the stage, they need to t- start taking more protein and more amino acids in order to promote their recovery. Um, and it's unfortunate because actually a lot of people in ultra endurance events have now started putting protein in their drinks because they see that, that pro tour cyclists do it and you don't need a protein in your drink unless you're racing again the next day. Right. Um, and, it's, it's a little bit like Gatorade. I yeah. mean, unless you've been in like a horrible car or like some kind of medical emergency, or you've run a race, you really don't need Gatorade. You right. shouldn't be drinking it with dinner right, on a right. Tuesday night. Right. Um, so anyway, um, but 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 the the nutrition they take in, the things that they eat, um, and 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 how much they hydrate on the bike, and all that sort of thing, that's not only geared for your performance today, but also your performance tomorrow, your performance right. next day, and all that sort of thing. Likewise, as soon as they get off the bike, they're thinking about the next day. Okay, how's it going to go? Um, what do I need to do? What recovery things do I need to eat immediately? And when do I need to eat later? And all that sort of thing. And so, mm-hmm. so they're always, always, always thinking about the next day, both mm-hmm. from the way they ride during the stage and the way they, 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 they nourish themselves during the stage and then also the way that they, they actually nourish themselves afterwards. Um, um, there is Every team has a massage therapist that they bring with them. Um, and so, so they, they, they will always go through massage on those days. Um, and, and, and so that's a big part of it as well. But, but that, those things being said, they don't totally recover from day to day, obviously. And so that's really what the tour de France is all about. And that's the reason why the final week is so compelling is because somebody could be brilliant for the first two weeks of the race and then could totally fall apart in the third week of the race. We saw that in the tour of Italy. There was a a rider named Adam Yates who was amazing for the first two and a half weeks and then literally one day fell 15 minutes behind and 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 finished out of the top 10 in the race. I mean, he was amazing, but he didn't meter his effort very well and 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 he he ended up falling apart spectacularly. On the other hand, Chris Froome was almost unseen for the first two and a half weeks of the race, then suddenly explodes in the last three or four days and ends up winning the overall race mm-hmm. because he hadn't he had metered out his effort in such a way. And so so you don't totally recover and, and, and that's kind of a big part of it is is who's gonna be good in that last week, who's gonna be able to manage their effort over the course of that three weeks. Um so anyway. Kind of answers your question a little bit. Yeah, but, but, very much so. But, but. And I, I think you make a good point that, you know, the race we see televised is when they're on their bike climbing the mountains and zooming through time trials, et cetera. But for the athletes themselves, the race isn't over when they get off their bike. Right. I mean, it's you got to stay engaged. It's an active recovery. The, and the recovery itself is not a detail. It is part of their race. It's part of their race plan. It's part of how they stay engaged and they stay focus and able to continue to produce a high output of energy for sure day in and day out and and, and case in point um so the leader of the race whoever is currently in the lead of the race is wears the yellow jersey mm-hmm. and you can so you can spot them out on the road very very easily you know everybody knows that and then the person who's wearing the yellow jersey at the finish line of the race the final finish line on the last day in paris that's the winner of the race overall mm-hmm. they get the final yellow jersey they're, they're, they're the winner right the maillot jaune um so um if you are wearing the yellow jersey, at the end of every single day, they have an award ceremony. And and 
you have to go oh. through. And so, so if you're in the lead of the race, so Fernando Gaviria, who won the race yesterday, is, is, is currently wearing the yellow jersey, right? So after the race, he had to go through doping controls. He had to have all the press stuff. He had to have the podium presentation. You know, he had to do all this bonus stuff. And so Chris Froome, like if he wants to win the race, he's probably better off not getting the yellow jersey until stage 12 or 13 or 14. Because if he were to get it tomorrow in stage three, he'd have to start doing all this bonus stuff that would interfere with his recovery and tire yeah. him out more and stuff like that that he didn't want to have to do. Um, a few years ago, Vincenzo Nibali, another great uh, Italian cyclist, uh, he ended up taking the jersey on stage two. Um, and, and everybody's like, that was a mistake. He's not going to win. And he ended up carrying the, the, the jersey all the way from stage two until the finish, ended up winning the race, which is an incredibly uh, impressive thing to do because he had to do all that other yellow jersey stuff while still racing his bike at a very high level. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So Chris Froome would, would – um, his team is probably going to do very well in the team time trial tomorrow. Um, he lost some time with the crash he did yesterday. Crashing on that first stage might have been a really good thing for him because it's going to keep him from being able to get the yellow jersey for at least a couple of weeks. And and he won't have to do all that extra stuff. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, it, for two reasons. One, we for, you know, when you're a professional athlete, it, you know, these press conferences and post-race, you know, activities are a job. It's not oh, yeah. grabbing Coca-Cola and hanging out with friends like maybe it is for like a, <coughs> the end of a marathon for a bit more of an amateur athlete. Second is I know I've heard from other athletes in other sports where they talked about like, you know, well, we made the playoffs three years in a row, so that meant an extra month of playing our sport. Mm-hmm. And then that fourth year we were done because we had played an extra, yeah. you know, 60 basketball games or an extra 10 football games. And but then by that fourth year, it huh. started to catch up. Like you have a whole extra year. Right. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So 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 good question. Next week we'll do another one. <laughs> oh, excellent. So or or ne- next next news and research day we'll do another. One. All right. So we've talked a lot about news and research. Let me mention one quick piece of news that that we would be remiss to leave off, and uh, and that's the death of a guy named Don Ritchie. Um, he's a Scottish guy. He was known as a stubborn Scotsman. He was considered by many to be the greatest ultra runner of all time. He died back on June sixteenth, uh, a couple of weeks ago. Here, um, between nineteen sixty two and two thousand eleven. Uh, he ran 208,100.8 miles um, and uh, in training and in racing. And he raced almost 1,000 times over the course of that 50-year span, um, which equates to going around the world about eight times. Um, uh, he ran his first marathon in 1966. He ran his first ultra event in 1970. Um, uh, like I said, he's considered to be one of the greatest uh, ultra runners of all time. If you name an ultra race, he, he certainly almost ran it and, and won it. Um, and so it's hard to pin down what might be his greatest all-time performance, but a lot of people would consider that, that in, uh, his 100 kilometer record is probably his greatest performance. So, uh, Patrick, you'll appreciate this. In October, 1978, he ran 250 laps of, uh, of a track at London's Crystal Palace to run a thousand kilometers at 62.2 miles in six hours, 10 minutes and 20 seconds. Um, so that's two consecutive marathons plus 10 miles at an average of 557 per mile um, on the track. That's unfathomable. First <laughs> yeah. of all, that is about 230 laps too many to run on a track, <laughs> any track or any loop. And second of all, to hold that pace for that long is outstanding. Yeah, yeah. And so, so, so like I said, uh, a brilliant ultra runner and, and considered to be one of the rest. Now, the epilogue to the story is that that record – um, that uh, of that hundred kilometer uh, record of six ten twenty stood until a week after his death. 
Um, so it literally stood for 40 years. Um, and, and a week after he died, his 100-kilometer record was broken by a Japanese guy named Nao Kazami at the Lake Saroma Ultramarathon. Um, Nao Kazami beat it by, uh, by four minutes there. Um, but uh, So rest in peace, uh, uh, Don Ritchie. We did want to make sure that we mentioned him as well. Um, all right, let's, uh, let's talk quickly about some research here. Uh, you go first. Sure. I'll pull it up on the computer here. So mine is simply titled, well, first of all, I'll say it comes from uh, the Springer International Publishing uh, AG. So I'm not even sure what exactly that means. But what these uh, researchers looked at is how mental fatigue um, is affected, or excuse me, affects endurance, right? And what what they eventually, essentially found was something that we've been saying on this podcast over and over again, and that is that mental fatigue does actually physiologically impair your endurance, mm-hmm. right? So... You know, I don't want to get into the details too, too much because this goes into all the like the chemical reactions that, that actually lead to that. And, uh, you know, we're not, you know, a, a chemistry uh, podcast, but the big I mean, you know, and uh, heaven help me if I try to actually pronounce some of this stuff. But the big takeaway here is, you know, we talk a lot about being tough. We talk a lot about having willpower. And that's important for endurance athletes. You have to have willpower to get up at 5.30 in the morning and get in your workout. You have to have willpower to, to be a runner or a triathlete or a cyclist day in and day out and to make the right decisions with what you eat, how you sleep, things of that nature. However, you know, care, you know that mental toughness has its limits. And it ultimately can actually impair your your running or your endurance your 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 ability to to run fast for a long period of time or to cycle fast for a long period of time from a physiological perspective from a psychobiological perspective and the reason i think this is an important study um is because like i said as endurance athletes we're kind of raised to constantly kind of keep pushing keep pushing keep pushing but the reality is our body does have limits, and it's not just the physiological limits. It's actually psychological limits. And most amateur athletes, or not shouldn't say most, but a lot of amateur athletes have very demanding jobs. You know, we have, you know, a lot of responsibilities in the home. So when we go to our workouts, we're not going to them fresh. We're going to them having, you know, already having to complete jobs that were cognitively demanding, that demanded us to maybe put on a happy face with, when a customer is upset with us or a client or a boss is upset with us. And so we're not always going into the workout fresh, but it's important to know that mental fatigue does actually impair your your actual physiological endurance, your ability to run fast or to cycle far for a long period of time. And I'll give you a bit get more of a background here. So this was actually so, so published. This was, it was specific to endurance then. Correct. Okay, because, because we've talked before, and, and I think, and I've certainly experienced how how mental fatigue can influence your your rate of perceived exertion. Yes. And so so therefore you can't go as hard when you're when you're 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 fatigued mentally. Correct. What what this says is that you can't go as far either, right? Yep. And what they they talked about, and so just to give you some background here, because I, I didn't set it up quite properly. This was published in sports in the journal Sports Medicine, uh, very recently in 2018. The title is called "Mental Fatigue Impairs Endurance Performance: A Physiological Explanation." Um, and what they do is they just go through and they talk about how, in this specific study, during an endurance test, you know, we know that perception of effort and motivation can influence performance, just like you talked about, right? And your ability to kind of push hard. But they've actually contended via this study that any manip- manipulation by which the accumulation um, of 
adenosine, which is a hormone, during mental exertion is reduced, which would minimize the impact of mental fatigue on subsequent endurance performance via these mechanisms. I know that's a, a lot of alphabet soup, but all they're what they're what they're getting at is your body from a physiological perspective does not release the same hormones when you're trying to run far and you're mentally fatigued from other cognitive activities as it would if you're going in mentally mentally fresh. fresh. Mm-hmm. And to me this is some this is a lesson I've had to learn over and over again because you know in, in other in a lot of the athletic culture it's a lot of no pain no gain keep pushing keep pushing keep pushing don't be weak that kind of a thing but you actually to be a smart endurance athlete a lot about like what you're talking about with the um tour de france is you have to know your limits Mm -hmm. and you may want to push to your limits but you certainly cannot push beyond because once you do there's almost no coming back and it's not just physiological it's also psychological well it's it's so it's interesting to me too that that they took that that chemical point of view Mm -hmm. um and and to me, it's further proof of something that I said on the podcast a couple of years ago when we first – the first one we ever – the first podcast I ever did about, about the brain, I said the brain's not really on your side. You know, and this whole idea of, of, of you know, mind over matter and, and you know, if, you're, if you're, you're tough, you can totally push through it and all that sort of thing. Your brain's not actually working with you. You literally have to use your brain to overcome your brain <laughs> because your brain actually is working with your body to shut you down. It, when, when you're starting to get to to the real limits of 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 uh, your capacity, and so I, I I do I think it's interesting as well that that this actually took that chemical approach yes. and said that 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 your your brain when you're mentally tired it actually will have a chemical effect on your body that will then influence your physicality and your physical abilities. Do you know what I mean? Yes. And so, so, so it's not th- this whole idea of oh, if you're just tough enough, you just push on through it and all that sort of thing. No, actually, if you're mentally fatigued, there is a physical response. You are physically less prepared and less capable of doing endurance sports. Right, and to, so, yeah, what they're saying is, you know, the, the higher perception of of effort experience during an endurance performance after, um, you know, after a a, cog- a demanding cognitive test. It like you said, it chemically affects how you're able to perform. Chemically, yeah, and yeah. that to me is where you start to get into the the realm of you know what this this is something where I can't simply say just keep going, mm-hmm. push forward. Next time I'll do better. Yeah, because when it when it talks about controlling your your body's chemistry, it's it's a whole different yeah. animal. Yeah, no, and and that that to me is what makes this study different and interesting than some of the stuff we've talked about before. Mm-hmm. Is 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 it it's showing that there's something happening on a chemical level as well. Right, and it's with your it, it, it's actually your chemical level too with with your brain. Mm-hmm. I mean, and you know they because they looked at well maybe you know. In previous studies looked at things like, well, we see that mental fatigue impairs endurance, right? So maybe it's because it increases your heart rate. No, your heart rate's not what increases. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's because there's greater lactate accumulation. No, that's not it either. Well, maybe it's because, you know, you have decreased neuromuscular function. No, that's not it either. It's really your your brain chemistry is what changed. Mm-hmm. And there is growing evidence that the connection between your brain and your body is much stronger than we originally thought. Yeah. Right. And, you know, I, I believe it was the Greeks that talked about, you know, <laughs> you know, mind over matter, but that's really not how humans work. It's not one or the other, mm-hmm. you know, well, the, the they're, ancient, they're both the, tied together. Yeah, the, the, the ancient Greeks had that idea of, of that the, the, the mind and the body were very much linked to one another. If you were sick, they would have you like write poetry. Right, um, and so so maybe they had it right. right. Um, 
Um, so my, my piece of research kind of picks up on that a little bit, or at least it sort of relates to it a little bit. Um, so mine was called, um, it's called a two year perspective cohort study of overuse running injuries, the runners and injury longitudinal study. Um, and it was by a group of researchers from Wake Forest. It was published in May in the American Journal of Sports Medicine. Um, and what they do is they, they took a pretty massive study, 300 recreational runners, and they followed them for two years. Uh, in order to figure out which factors predicted who would get injured. So pretty solid study, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, just from, from straight up, just if, if, if that's all you know about the study design, that is about all I know about the study design, um, it, it's a pretty good setup. 300 recreational runners, um, uh, and they said there were people who ran between 20 and 30 minutes for a 5K. Um, and so, so 300 recreationals for two, two years trying to figure out which uh, factors predicted who would get injured. Now, strikingly, 199 of them, which is 66%, sustain at least one injury. Um, and so personally, that alone to me is very striking that over the course of two years, 199 out of 300 people sustain an injury. Um, 73% of the women did, 62% of the men did. Um, uh, of the injured runners, 111 of them, which is 56 of those 100, 56% of those 199, sustained more than one injury, uh, or sustained injuries more than once. Um, that makes so, sense. So, so yeah, that was kind of striking as well. But what you just said, that makes sense. That's based on the idea that the greatest predictor of someone getting injured is whether they've been injured before, right? And that's always kind of been been the 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 gold standard if you've been injured and injured before you're more likely to get injured again that's always been the greatest predictor of of future injuries um they found the group at wake forest found that that at least in this group of 300 recreational runners who ran between 20 20 and 30 minutes um that 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 did not have significant predictive value they measured a bunch of different things flexibility arch height quadriceps angle rear foot motion lower extremity strength weekly mileage, footwear, and previous injury, and a few other things. But all of those things I just mentioned, again, flexibility, arch height, quadriceps angle, rear foot motion, lower extremity strength, weekly mileage, footwear, and previous injury, none of those things in this group of runners had any predictive value, they said. Um, that, that none of those things shed light on who was going to get injured and who wasn't going to get injured. Um, instead, they said there were three factors that were predictive three factors that did make a difference one was whether you're a man or a woman um they said women got got injured at higher rates Mm -hmm. um and and for me the takeaway with that is is i think it's sort of minor takeaway is that that you just sort of need to be mindful of those sorts of things if if you're training a woman or if you are a woman and you're and you're guiding your own training Mm -hmm. um you just need to be, be be mindful of that i i I mean, they said that 73% of women got injured and 62% of men got injured in their study. To me, I, I don't feel like – I mean, I guess if you crunch the numbers, that is statistically significant, the difference between 73% and 62%. But I, I don't know. I, I don't think that's – I don't think that's a huge takeaway. But anyway, uh, number two, uh, knee stiffness, um, So, which is a measure of how much the knee bends when a given force is applied to it. The the stiffer your knees were, the more the more often people were injured. Um, now, not coincidentally, uh, high weight, somebody who's heavy, uh, is, has tend to have much stiffer knees. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so it could be not that their knees were stiff, but, but rather they were carrying more weight around. Um, but, uh, but one way or another, uh, if your knees were stiffer, i.e. if they didn't bend very well, 
um, that was a significant contributor. It's actually the largest contributor they found in this uh, group of 300 recreational runners uh, to who would get injured and who wouldn't. Um, but the third one um, is, is the one that I wanted to talk about, mm-hmm. um, and that was mental health. Um, they gave them all a mental health questionnaire at the outset, um, and, and they found that, that those who scored lower on the mental health questionnaire got injured more often. Um, to a statistically significant level, um, mm-hmm. and that, that someone's mental health was, was actually more predictive of whether they would get injured than flexibility, arch height, quadriceps angle, rear foot motion, lower extremity strength, weekly mileage, footwear, or previous injury. Your mental health ad- actually mattered the most. Now, there was two aspects of mental health that they said was, was, was important. The first one was a worse mental health-related quality of life. So in other words, like you were talking about, if you have a stressful job, Yep. Um, or if you're unhappy in your life, if you're in a bad marriage or something else like that, right. um, you have things that are constantly causing you stress, you're actually at a higher likelihood of getting injured running. Mm-hmm. Now, not a higher likelihood of burnout, not a higher likelihood of getting overtrained, but actually a higher likelihood of getting an injury yeah. um, if you have a stressful life or something that, that actually leads you to have a, a worse mental health quality of life. Um, and the second thing is that if you had a uh, second aspect of mental health was that if you had a lot of negative affective states, like if you were jittery, irritable, or nervous a lot. Um, so people who said on the questionnaire, I, I am, I am often jittery or nervous or irritable. Mm-hmm. Those people had higher rates of injury. Um, and so, yeah, kind of fascinating. Okay, so the knee stiffness thing, yeah, okay. So the man or woman thing, yeah, okay. But but literally of all of these varying factors in this group of 300 recreational runners that they followed for two, uh, for two years, um, uh, one of the statistically significant contributors to injury was the mental health of the people that they were studying. So what do you think about that? Oh, man, so many takeaways from this. Um, so the, the – f- the first thing is this just continues to build evidence that, as we've talked about before, the, the brain and body are not two separate entities, right? We we pretty much can stop saying that. Right. I mean, it's <laughs> – and, you know, mind over matter is it's, – it's a silly saying. It's not true um, or it really can't be implemented in any kind of systemic or, or sustainable way. You know, and, and when you talked about how, you know, it, you know, an increase in nervousness tends to kind of lead to more injuries – my first takeaway was, or my first thought was, I, th- I think that is, that could be because a lot of times, you know, one thing we say as coaches is you need to have confidence in the training, that you'll get to where you need to go. You just, yeah. you just may not be there right now. Right. Right. And so a lot of times, I'm sure you've, you've seen this before, you'll say, okay, we need to have a lot of easy days. We need to have a lot of slow running and a slow build. And then, yeah, you're going to have some races where it's not going to turn out the way you want right now. Or you may struggle to run a 10K at your goal uh, half marathon pace, for example, but that's okay. It's July. It's a de- you're training for December, but a lot of times you'll see people maybe get nervous, and then all of a sudden you'll see they ran ten miles. Mm-hmm. Like, whoa, 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 whoa! This wasn't part of the plan here. Right. You know, we don't need to, or we don't need to blast out a huge, you know, a- intense workout. Right. You know, because all of a sudden you got scared and nervous that you weren't going to meet your goals. You know, so then you know it can be easy to kind of self sabotage yourself. I think we've all mm-hmm. done it as as you know. Um, as coaches and as athletes where, you know, all of a sudden you, you get nervous, you get, get a little anxious and this, then you start workouts. So then when that happens, what happens is workouts go from being, all right, I want to build to this and I want to 
insert this stimulus and my body will react this way, which will then, you know, lead me to having a strong race to be in. All right, I need to prove I can run this. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to crush this long run. And yeah. then that long run ends up being your best run for the entire training cycle right. and you never right. get to race well. Right. So that was kind of one of my, that's where my head first went is it just showed how much confidence and the training plan really needs to be. And kind of confidence in yourself and that you'll get to where you need to go. Totally. It needs you know, to be on the forefront of your mind. Totally. I, I, I'm interested to hear what your next takeaway is, but I completely am 100% agree with you on that. Yeah. Um, and, and they don't, they, they don't know from this study what the mechanism is. Right. So, so they, they don't, they don't know what the path is from the lack of mental health or from the jitteriness and irritability and nervousness to injury. They don't know exactly how that happens. Um, and so further study is required as so often is, is mentioned in, in research studies, but, right. um, but I would posit that that's probably probably one of the ways, if not the chief way, um, is that, that when people say, say, well, I'm, I'm not getting in shape fast enough, so I just need to, to jack up my mileage. And so they, they go out and start running extra runs or mm-hmm. or, um, you know, they 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 double the distance of, of, of a long run or something like that. I mean, like you said, we've all done that. And I, and I think yep. athletes will, will continue to do that. Um, um, I, I, you know, I didn't run far enough this week. And so I'm going to go out on Sunday night after I did a long run on Sunday morning, I'm going to re- do an additional run. I'm going to run 10 more miles or something like that. I mean, I, I, I've seen athletes do that. And so, so I would be willing to bet that that is probably part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that nervousness and jitteriness is, uh, become, you know, gets translated into a lack of faith in the training program, which in turn, um, uh, translates into some, some bad training choices. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what else? Uh, I would say too. Just in general, I know when I have increased stress levels or increased anxiety, my decision making skills take a rapid. Yeah. They fall off a cliff essentially. You know, it's it's like if if you're not used to public speaking and you get in front of a classroom or or on stage for the first time, all of a sudden you you know you don't know what to say. You're kind of right. you're you're either mumbling or you're like screaming nonsense. <laughs> you know, one way or the other. And I think that that can happen too with with training because you know maybe all this you know you. you your judgment gets clouded with anxiety, with fear, and then that can that can you know that can lead to some bad decisions. Which then, you know, whether it be what you eat, how you sleep, how you um, stretch, you know, what you know, what what kind of massages you sign up for, anything like that, can lead to some bad decisions. I think so how about you? I, I think that's an excellent point too. Um, you know, I, I was I was actually thinking just last night mm-hmm. um, that that in a lot of ways, I always feel like my training is sort of a house of cards. Yeah. Um, and, and that if it's going well, everything's going well. Yeah. Um, and if I'm running well, I'm training well, I'm sleeping well, I'm eating well, I'm just, I'm just nailing it. But if one thing kind of falls apart, everything goes to hell. Right. Do you know what I mean? And so, so, um, and the reason why I was thinking about it last night is because, because I've had a little bit of a cold. You might've heard me coughing a little bit here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so yesterday I took some cold medicine and I tried to do a workout and I was a little bit too ambitious with, with what I wanted to do. Um, and so I had to quit the workout early because the cold kind of got the best of me and the cold mm-hmm. medicine got the best of me. That's okay. That happens. Yeah. Um, but since the workout went poorly, I like, like the rest of the night, the, 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 the gloves were off when it came to what I ate. I just ate a whole exactly. bunch of garbage for the rest of the night, you know, cause I'm like, well, Stress screw eating. it. Yeah. You know, um, you know, and comfort eating and, and, and so if I would have had a good workout, it wouldn't have been that way. If I would have had a good workout, I would have been like, oh, okay, that was a great workout. Now let me follow that up with some really good food. And, and, right, and, let's keep and, the good times rolling. Yeah, and it, and it was literally the opposite. Um, and so so you can totally see the way that, that, that somebody who, who is under a lot of stress mentally 
and then maybe they don't have a very good workout and then everything else kind of falls apart and so they don't recover very well and they don't eat the right things and they don't sleep enough that night and mm-hmm. and and then that happens over the course of two weeks, three weeks, two months, three months, they get injured. Mm-hmm. You can totally see the way that that, that, that can kind of snowball and happen. Yep. Um, so, yeah, I think that's an excellent point as well. Um, so, yeah, like I said, the, uh, the mechanism um, by which uh, these sorts of, of mental preconditions or these mental proclivities ultimately lead to, to injury is not clear. Um, but I, I, I think we're on the right track. <laughs> yeah, and now do you have any other takeaways from this study or anything so, else that was so, interesting to you? Um, not in addition to the two that you just said, um, okay. except to also say that that um, I often will say to my athletes that that you need to make sure that that you're taking into account the rest of your life when you when yes. you're thinking about about your training, um, and you need to communicate well with your coach what's going on in your life. Um, are you undergoing a breakup? Are mm-hmm. you moving? Um, are you Has about to lose death? your job? Yeah. Has there been a death in the family? Exactly. Like all of these really stressful things. Um, and, and, and I want to add to that too, sort of cut you off. Even good stress is stress. Yeah. Even let's say you go you're from planning a marriage. Let's say you didn't. Yeah. You're planning a wedding. You are going from a not great job to a great job, but there's still a transition period. We have to learn how the phones work and how the computer system works, yeah. et cetera. Yeah. So yeah, the word, the word, the word transition has a negative connotation. Um, but, but I don't think it should, um, that, that, that transitions can be very positive things, but they, they, like you say, they can be stressful. And I think we want to tend, we tend to, to turn to our exercise or to our training to say, oh, well, this is going to be a de-stressor. If you're training at a certain level, it's not de-stressing. Right, right. <laughs> it's, it's, it's adding to your stress. And so, so, so you need to, you need to actually take into account what's going on in the rest of your life. Um, and, and you need to make sure that you're, you're addressing your training. Um, lest you actually will get overtrained, even if you're tra- not training as much as, as as other people who live less stressful lives than you. Yeah, and, and it gets to you know, one phrase I can't stand that we 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 tend to use a lot, just in, in general, is work life balance, because mm-hmm. there really is no such thing as balance, <laughs> right? You know, most people listen to this podcast. If I said how many balanced days have you had in the last thirty, they'd say, well, on Fourth of July, I didn't have to work, so that was pretty cool. <laughs> but like. Like, what does balancing work like? It's waking up early. It's getting in your workout. It's running from the workout to the shower to the to work. And then you have to put together a presentation, present to people, you know, then maybe um, help out a family member that evening. You know, there's no such thing as, as, as balance necessarily. But what you're doing is you're trying to, you know, create habits or systems in your life that, that allow you to kind of at least try to be consistent or at least kind of re- reduce uncertainty mm-hmm. and kind of allow you to – you know, create a, an infrastructure where you're able to make the best decisions possible. Hmm. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Very good. I'll try not to use that phrase around you anymore. What? Work-life balance? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Very good. All right, Patrick, final thoughts? Uh, I'm looking forward to seeing how the, the Tour de France turns out. Um, good final thought, Patrick. Yeah. Very nice. So, you know, I am very much you, – you talked about – you know, comparing yourself to, to being someone who's had to commentate like on a sport you don't know. This is one where I'm a total amateur, but I, I still enjoy it. I still think it's fascinating. I'm still amazed that human beings can complete the race, much less go right. as fast as a Lance Armstrong can. I mean, right. my goodness. Right. Yeah. It's it's just a phenomenal athletic uh, achievement and endeavor, even to the person who finishes in last place. It really is. Yeah, July is the best uh, best uh, best month of the year in large part because it's tour month. 
Yeah, and Peachtree Road Race. And Peachtree Road Race. And then... And my anniversary. Oh, there we go. Um, (laughs) And then, you know, to to kind of close it off on on our research studies, you know, we we talked about how there is such a thing as mental fatigue. We talked about how, you know, sometimes stress in your life can... can, can, Or or maybe, you know, stress, good and bad, can lead to maybe um, a downfall sometimes if there's too much or not able to, to handle it. And I would say more and more what we're finding in exercise science is it's a good idea to give yourself a break, mental and physical. Um, and because whenever you're training for endurance sports, the real goal is to just be consistent. And what I mean by that is to put in consistent training, consistent mileage. One intense workout does not trump, you know, weeks of, of solid workouts. And, you know, the hard part is humans are not, you know, consistent. We are essentially monkeys with pants on. <laughs> So, you know, that's that's part of why you have coaches. That's part of why, why we have training groups to kind of help us kind of smooth out the rough edges, so to speak, and, and keep us sane when we're, when we're stressed. Right on. Very good. Very good. Thanks for that, Patrick. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. We will see you next time on the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast. that'll do it for another installment of the most pleasant exhaustion podcast thanks for joining us everybody make sure that you reach out to us on twitter at pleasant podcast or on facebook facebook.com slash pleasant podcast reach out to our sponsor itl coaching and performance at itl coaching on twitter at itlcoaching.com or on facebook facebook.com slash itl coaching and performance and don't forget about our other sponsor casey the travel planner you can find her on facebook at facebook.com slash casey travel planner mev you can drop her an email at casey travel planner at gmail.com that's k-a-c-i-e travel planner at gmail.com or just go to our website casey travel planner.com on behalf of patrick ollander this is george darden thanks again for joining us on the most pleasant exhaustion podcast see you next time